Hello, everyone, and welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, taped today on Monday, November 7th, 2016. Uh, Just so you guys know, that means that today is the day before Election Day. If you're listening to this on Monday or on Tuesday and there's still time, please go and vote. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Jordan Wathen, one of our top analysts at The Motley Fool. Hey, Jordan, how's it going? It's going all right. Good to see you back in the United States. Oh, I'm so happy to be home. Um, it was a great trip, uh, but it's there's something to be said about being home and being able to eavesdrop on people on the metro and being able to brush my teeth with water from the faucet. Oh, such exciting things. Um, anyway, I've been gone for a month, just in case you somehow missed it through all of the pre-recorded podcasts that we did. And I haven't really checked the news because it's not really a vacation if you check the news. So Jordan has graciously agreed to fill me in on some of the financials news that I missed while traveling. Uh, Follow along to learn what I missed and maybe what you potentially missed over the last month. I was thinking that maybe we could start with a story that we were following really closely before I left, um, but I don't know anything about right now, which is the Wells Fargo story. Um, As you guys might remember, I hope you remember, I don't really know, the news cycle is so short these days. Uh, Wells Fargo um, was accused and eventually proven correct that they had opened a bunch of um, fake accounts. And um, it, they were being investigated. They had to pay a bunch of fines. They, uh, John Stump, the CEO, was required to stand up in front of the uh, Senate Banking Committee in front of Elizabeth Warren, and he got absolutely roasted. Totally watch that footage if you haven't yet, even though it's totally a month old now. Um, what's happened for Wells Fargo since I left? Well, so I think the big story with Wells Fargo is that John Stump's career actually came to an end over the fraudulent account scandal at Wells Fargo. So. To recap, they opened 2 million accounts for people who basically never said they wanted them. And now John Stump, finally, finally after some push and shove, he exited on October 12th and stepped down as CEO of Wells Fargo. And this is like really wild. Um, John Stump has been the CEO of Wells Fargo since 2007. Um, and People before all this happened, he they thought that he was an incredible CEO and they thought he was an incredible leader. And, and here we are, 2016, and he has to step down because his company has been up to things that they really shouldn't have been. Right. So if you go back, if you read any book on the financial crisis, really, and you look at what happened during the bailouts, John Stumpf basically said, look, Wells Fargo's on solid ground. We don't need your bailout money. I don't even know why you're bothering me and bringing me here, basically. I mean, Wells Fargo really was, they were they were perhaps better off than any other bank. And really, his legacy could have been that he successfully guided Wells Fargo through you know, the worst financial crisis or ever or since the Great Depression. And now, basically, his name gets tarnished with this whole scandal. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me because... Um, at the beginning of this scandal, it didn't seem like he had a great grasp of how seriously everyone was taking it. Like, I don't know if you've seen any of the footage of him talking about it like really early on, but he didn't even seem like he was going to step down or really apologize. Like, Carrie Tolstep was going to get a ton of money and like stock options. So it's just really interesting to see how things have shifted. I wonder what happened to cause him to be like, you know what, I'm stepping down. Well, I mean, I, I think it's just just the pressure. This, this is one of those things that, you know, during the financial crisis, right, every bank was in trouble. They all underwrote terrible loans. Uh, 
they all lost billions of dollars on these loans. But right now, you know, it's just Wells Fargo, right? It's just Wells Fargo that you're hearing about with these account scandals. And the numbers that they put out this quarter have indicated that there's at least been some kind of change in the sales process because they noted that checking account opens were down 25% year over year in September and credit card applications were down 20% year over year in September also. So it's either, well, it's probably two things. It's the consumers are wary of Wells Fargo, I think, to some extent. And there's probably a very obvious change in sales practices. Uh, people are no longer getting accounts they didn't necessarily request. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Wells Fargo long term. Um, I'm not going to make a call right now because I literally just got back, so I haven't looked at anything they've put out. Um, but you can, you better believe that we're definitely going to do a show on it later on, uh, probably this quarter. Um, so let's move on to something else that you mentioned to me before the show. Um, apparently, Wall Street Journal put out an article about uh, index investing. Right. The Wall Street Journal basically turned October into a discussion on index investing and basically the rise of passive investing. And it was it was over the course of a series of articles that basically detail how passive funds are pretty much the only investment funds anymore that are bringing in money on a net basis. So money is leaving funds that are actively managed to be invested in index funds. And obviously this rise has been you know, super important for the financial industry. Active investors are probably under more pressure now than they ever have been to generate results that go beyond or beat or exceed their index. So this is actually a really timely story because we talked about this um, on a podcast while I was gone about um, active management versus just just index tracking. Um, and one of the biggest players in this space is BlackRock. Um, and I know that you said that they, they said some pretty extreme things post this Wall Street Journal uh, article. Well, right. So what, what's happened basically is there's an ongoing fee war. Um, and passive funds, because it, you know, it, just to get down to the very basics, there's no difference between index funds, really. It's just if an index fund tracks the S&P 500, it just tracks the S&P 500. So the best fund to invest in is the one that can do it the least expensive or charge the lowest fees to investors to do it. And basically, BlackRock is engaging in an all-out fee war now. And they came out and they reduced fees on 15 of their exchange-traded funds which have about $220 billion in assets. So it's a huge pool of assets. And some of the, the big cuts were to their S&P 500 ETF, uh, trades under the ticker IVV. They cut that fee almost in half from seven basis points to four basis points. They cut their uh, fees on a aggregate bond ETF, which is basically a total bond market invests in, it basically tries to design a portfolio so that it looks like the bond market as a whole. They cut that fee from eight basis points to five basis points. And then after they did this, interestingly enough, the, uh, a, uh, an executive BlackRock went to Bloomberg and he said, our plan basically is to make their S&P 500 ETF the biggest in the world. Basically, in no uncertain terms, he's saying, we're going to compete on fees and make sure this is the biggest. That's And then, of course, you know, you can't have a fee cut without someone else chiming in. Uh, Charles Schwab followed it up. And because... BlackRock actually matched their pricing on their bond ETF. They cut theirs by one basis point, so it'd be four basis points instead of five, <laughs> just so they could be the cheapest. That's incredible. I feel like uh, maybe potentially Vanguard might end up with the, having a run for their money. Um, the other thing that that made news while I was gone, um, according to Jordan, um, this is not the most exciting news, but 
we feel like as if we should cover it is the money market fund rules have changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah, it, it's not the most exciting news. <laughs> it's not supposed not supposed to be. Uh, but you, if you own a money market fund, you might have gotten a letter. And uh, basically, what happened was the government changed the rules on money market funds so that if they invest in private securities, so debt issued by companies, they have to mark basically their assets to market. If they invest in government bonds, then they can uh, basically keep their $1 share price that they know and love. And what this has happened, what has happened as a result of this is that all this money, just billions upon billions of dollars, has gone into government bonds that used to be invested in corporate bonds. So now corporations are spending more than they ever have to borrow short-term money. It's kind of created an inefficiency in the market, at least for the short term. Yeah. So although this sounds boring on the surface, um, it will be interesting to see how this shakes out long term for companies because they've basically been cut off from a cheap source of, of um, short-term funding. So we're going to see how they react to that. But that's something that's going to become more apparent in like months from now. Right now, right. it's still kind of a boring story. <laughs> right. It's a boring story. It's good news for it's good news for banks, uh, bank earnings because LIBOR, which is the index for short-term interest rates, has gone up. And so floating rate loans that are based on that index have produced more interest income than they otherwise would have. So that, that kind of gave you a little pop in uh, bank earnings Yeah. Uh, as a result of the shift. Which is also the most exciting news. I guess if you're listening to this podcast, bank earnings must be exciting to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and then that kind of brings us to our last news item, which is the FDIC says that they want new banks. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost hard to believe. So, um, the the FDIC, this is actually, in April they came out and they said, you know what, we're, gonna, we're going to make it easier to start a new bank by uh, reducing the regulatory scrutiny that you get uh, on a new bank from seven years to three years. So basically, when a new bank starts, the FDIC scrutinizes them a little more heavier than it otherwise would for, three, for seven years. And now that's down to three years. So making it a little bit easier. Um, and really, it's kind of important because there haven't been many new banks in the United States. The only one that I can find is called Bank of Bank of Bird in Hand, which is based out in I don't know. I think it's Amish country, Pennsylvania. That doesn't sound real. And it's the real. only bank since 2010 to start up. Oh my gosh! That no, that that doesn't. That first of all, that bank doesn't sound real. I don't think I would put money in there. Um, that's not an official recommendation, mind you, because I am just a podcast host. But I don't know. Bird in Hand is better than two in the bush. Not sure how I feel about that. Um, so the F and second of all, um, the FDIC wanting more banks. Um, I think listeners would probably ask themselves why. Um, besides creating more competition, um, one of the things that happened post-financial crisis is that a lot of really big banks left small communities. So a lot of smaller communities have been underserved by the bigger banks. Um, there are a couple of smaller regional banks that have taken advantage of this because when the bigger banks left small communities, they moved in and were like, haha, here, we'll take all your deposits and make you uh, loans and stuff like that. But um, in general, smaller communities are underserved by larger banks. Right. And so this is kind of like a multi-decade trend, right? So I, I, before the show, I went and looked it up. And if you go back to the early 1980s, there were 14,000 banks in the United States. And as of the second quarter, 2016, there were only 5,200 commercial banks. Yeah. So roughly one third as many. 
And then obviously, of course, you know, the number of banks doesn't really doesn't really matter if you live in a place where the larger banks aren't serving. So what happens in a lot of cases, and I'm just going to use this as an example, but New York Community Bank is obviously based out of New York, but they actually have branches in Florida, Arizona, and Ohio. They take deposits in those areas, but they don't make many loans in those areas. They're mostly making loans in New York City. I think it's greater than 90% of their loan books in New York City, right? Yeah. So what happens is they're taking deposits in these cities, but they're not making loans to the residents of those cities. And obviously the FDIC and you know bank regulators as a whole would like to see more community banks that are focused on these smaller areas. Yeah. So we will see how this shakes out. Maybe we'll start reporting to you about new banks soon. Um, this kind of brings us to the end of our news segment. Jordan, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, that, that's really just it. Uh, I think October was uh, fairly boring. I guess you I mean, you that's missed good. a good month. <laughs> I think no news is good news, really, in the banking sector, because I feel like the only news we ever get is bad news. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but if listeners feel like there's something else I need to know, please drop me a line at industryfocus at fool.com. I will definitely respond to you. And I'm sorry to everyone who emailed me while I was gone. I will respond to you within the next few days. Um, so I just wanted to take a moment. I was talking to Chris Hill before the show, and he mentioned that people might like to hear about my trip. So here's kind of a quick top three summation of my trip. And if you really want to hear more, you can also email me at industryfocus at fool.com. Um, weirdest thing I saw was Window of the World. This is an amusement park that's right outside Shenzhen, or I guess it's in Shenzhen in China. Um, most mainland Chinese are never really going to be able to leave China. So they've set up this kind of like crazy park that has all the wonders of the world, according to the Chinese, <laughs> um, miniaturized and stuffed into a park. So they have like an Eiffel Tower and an Arc de Triomphe and a blue mosque. Um, they also have an America land, which was bizarre to visit because they have like a scale model of the White House. And then overlooking that is Mount Rushmore. Um, and I don't know if that was <laughs> for comedic effect or if they're not 100% on their grasp of American geography or what, but it was definitely a really interesting thing to see. Um, the most dangerous thing I did while on my trip was crossing the street in Hanoi. I strongly encourage you to look up YouTube videos of it. Uh, it's terrifying, um, but once I accepted my death, um, my inevitable demise, in, the, in my my inconsequential place in the universe, it was totally fine. Um, and the most incredible place I visited were the temples around Siem Reap. Um, Beng Malia was my favorite. That's spelled B-E-N-G-M-E-L-E-A. If you want to look it up on Google, it's super beautiful. If you can ever make it to Cambodia, I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, and for those of you guys keeping track at home, you'll remember that I am a vomiter. Um, I puke all the time, and in case you're wondering, I only vomited twice on this trip, which is an incredible feat for me, and only one of those times was food-related. Uh, in other news, it turns out that taking two pills of Dramamine make me pass out and drool on people, so I will not be doing that again. Um, also, I need to buy stock in whatever company makes Dramamine. Okay, so that brings me to the end of my summary about my trip. I feel like I've just forced you all to look at my vacation pictures, and I'm so sorry about that. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Again, contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Thanks to Austin Morgan. I totally missed you, buddy. 
Um, And thank you to everyone else for joining us. Everyone have a great week.